Lay it, lay it on the line. You've got to lay it, lay it, it lay it, baby. On the line. Lay it, lay it on the line. You've got to lay it, lay it, it lay it, baby. On the line. Lay it, lay it on the line. You've got to lay it, lay it, it lay it, baby. On the line. Lay it, lay it on the line. You've got to lay it. Hello and welcome to the RA Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Aaron Coultate and I'm the Editor-in-Chief at Resident Advisor. This week on The Exchange, we return to the iFilm Museum in Amsterdam for another recording from RA's annual conference at Deckmantel Festival. This time we have a live interview with the King of Boogie, Leroy Burgess. Never sticking long with one group, but working constantly with producer extraordinaire Patrick Adams, Burgess's powerhouse vocals can be found across classic records by Freak, Log, Inner Life, Black Ivory, Bumblebee Unlimited and Aleem. Despite being behind some massive hits, Burgess has a selfless approach that has never prioritised personal fame. And as he told Gabriel Zatton in this hour-long interview, he is as energised by music now as at any point across his 50-year career. You can hear our full archive of exchanges at resonantadvisor.net or find them on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The Exchange with Leroy Burgess is up next. Please give a warm hand, if you haven't already, to the, the dazzler of the bumblebees, the king of the boogie, Mr. Leroy Burgess. Hi, everybody. Your music has been a constant in so many lives, but I was wondering when it first formally entered yours, was it always in the air or was it something you had to kind of strive to find yourself? Well, music... Uh as it turns out, I come from a really large musical family. For me, it began with my mom, who was a classically trained contralto. She used to sing this beautifully around the house. So when I was a baby, it's one of the first things I heard. Her favorite music was Johnny Mathis, which became my favorite music. Uh, from that point on, at around age three, you know, just around the same time I was talking, I was singing melodically and speaking, you know, so that just led me to love it and get into it. That was the beginning. Uh, but as I said, as it turns out, I come from a huge musical family that includes Cool and the Gang, the Bell Brothers and Cool and the Gang, Tom Bell, Betty Wright, Jerry Bell. There's just a lot of people in my bloodline. So I, I, I kind of think I was predestined to do music. 
he made a mix in the last few weeks and months, I believe, which had a really nice title of Freedom in Jazz. Um, and your music seems to express, and your singing especially, seems to express a lot of freedom and gaiety um, mm-hmm. and happiness. And I wonder if that was something that you latched onto as your understanding of music kind of crystallized and you began to pick favorites. If you were looking for any particular element in the music you listened to, and was it freedom or was it something else that was really hitting you from a young age? Um, well, from the time I began composing, I was blessed to have some very, very learned and very, very enlightened uh, teachers and mentors, and one of whom was Stevie Wonder. And one of the main things he told me was, it's important what you decide to say with your music, because particularly if it's blessed to become popular or well-received, you want to be imparting a positive message, something that lifts the world up. So for that reason, I try to think positive, think happy thoughts, for lack of a better word, and just infuse messages of hope into my work. You mentioned Stevie Wonder giving you advice, which I think I can safely say you're pretty much the only person in this room for who that could ever possibly happen. (laughs) Can we track back a little and for Mm -hmm. you to go deep on Stevie, how he came into your life, how his mentorship developed. It's not a common thing for anyone to hear, and I'd love to know how stage by stage that relationship grew. Well, it's really easy. My group had put out our first album, the Don't Turn Around album, my group Black Ivory, and he heard the album. And uh, at the time, I think he had out, he had just released the Talking Book album. Uh, So he was playing at the Apollo Theater, and he invited the group to, you know, at that time, uh, the performances at the Apollo Theater was a week long. So he had to do seven days, about two or three shows a day. So he invited us to the premiere show. And, of course, Stevie Wonder has always been my idol. So I'm like, oh, my God, Stevie Wonder, what am I going to do? And he met me, and he was very friendly. He did an amazing performance, just crazy amazing. And uh, after the show, I asked him if I could stick around for the second show. And uh, he said he was kind enough to say yeah. And um, during the time, you know, me being the gushing fan, I uh, asked him a whole bunch of questions. You know, I started to pick his brain. He's Stevie Wonder, so if you get a chance, you want to pick his brain. So he was very, very forthcoming, very, very kind. And he, you know, we actually walked around the, the backstage of the theater to the piano and so forth and so on. I asked him specific questions about pitch and about how to write songs and so forth and so on. As I said, he's one of the people that imparted that it's important, the message that you put out, because thousands of people might hear it, be influenced by it. You want to do things that lift people up. Another thing that he taught me was the perfect pitch formula, all right, which is a little formula that he taught me so that I could hear the pitches correctly of all the records. Um, And uh, one of the things that he taught me that was most impressive was uh, when I first met him, I was a fan. I was a fanboy. You know, it's crazy. I was just like, oh, God, Stevie, oh, my God. And, you know, the first thing he told me was, take me down from that pedestal, all right? 
Um, he said that I'm, I'm a regular guy like you, right? I come from the same place as you can. And then he told me the most stark thing. He said, everything that I, I'm doing, or everything you see me doing, you can do. And I was like, what, are you crazy? <laughs> Come on. You're Stevie Wonder. So, but he was very sincere about it. And at that point, I began believing him. And over the course of the rest of the week, I ended up going back to the Apollo every day, every day, you know. And he was always happy to see me, always happy for me to hang out. And every time I hung out with him, he would teach me different things and help me to, um, because I was young. I, I, he was, he's about six years older than me, or four, four, anywhere between four and six years older than me. But he was just very cool and very willing to um, share you know, his gifts and the things that he'd learned. And um, from the time that I got them, I always incorporated them into mine because it was just brilliant. So that's what happened. I read a, um, a really insightful book quite recently about songs in the key of life, explaining about Stevie's role in the late 70s, mm-hmm. um, which, which in this book they said it was like a recession for black superstars in America that Curtis Mayfields and Marvin Gaye's were on the low ebb. It was before Michael Jackson and Prince came up mm-hmm. and Stevie was the one holding the industry together. He was holding Motown together and he was doing so in a way that was not showy and he wasn't falling prey to temptations of disco and fame and that he was exactly as you're describing him, his a regular guy yeah. with a supernatural talent. Mm-hmm. And that's what, what his struck. His humility is just... Awesome. I, I was like, how can you be this regular, you know, being who you are? And then you listen to the message of his songs and the things that he's sharing with the world. And you think, you know, you want to pedestalize him because it's so great. The things, the songs that he puts into your life end up lifting them and lifting your life in one way or another. But when you meet him, he's just so humble. He's like down to earth. He refuses to be pedestalized. He's like, I'm just like you. Don't do that. Um, you know, uh, because it's important to him that we are on the, that we know his fans and his, his, the people that he interacts with knows that he's, we're on the same level. All right. He doesn't consider himself a, a great star or anything like that. He's always, always been just super humble. And for that reason, he, at that time, he was extremely approachable. And um, I, was, I was just I there. See, I, I can see like, even now. I was like, okay. You know, if there's anybody I'd like to learn from, you're one of the people that I'd love to do that. And um, so that's, he's humble. He's a humble guy. Do you think that lesson of humility um, helped you in a an industry where you were not allowed to be the out-and-out star to begin with? You worked with many bands under many project aliases. And often, this is, as a listener, 30, 40 years down the line, it's hard to understand why some things were folded and other things began, why some names were dropped unceremoniously, it seems. I don't know whether you need to have an inner humility to kind of roll with the punches as labels were building things and then ending them quite quickly. I don't know if that's a facet of your personality that you can just roll with that. Well, a lot of back in the 70s, what a lot of people don't know is many of the 
quote unquote groups that were being created, such as Freak and Conversion and so forth, they didn't so much start as groups. They weren't actual entities, as they were studio musicians, of which I was one. Um, and uh, whatever role you were in, whether it's the composer or the lead or the background, it's not an actual group. The groups came out of the development, very much like Millie Vanilli, all right? Um, there's not an actual group, all right? And then you put actors in the, you know, but in my case, uh, a group like Conversion featured myself, my cousin Sonny, my, my, my cousin Sonny Davenport, my, my brother James Calloway, my sister Renee. And when Sam Records took the name, they copyrighted the name out from under us. So, but Salso wanted the project. And Salso came up with the name Lark. And we were like, okay, <laughs> what's in the name? Um, so essentially it was the same group, but with a different name. Same thing as how we became Universal Robot Band. I was going to bring this one up. Same group, different name. Um, so uh, for me, it has always been more important for people to recognize the music as, a, as opposed to me, my personality, or me personally. That was never important. I wanted people to appreciate and get the songs and get the and, and and get the work. I wanted my work to get into the heads of people, all right? And doing that above focusing on me. So I always shared with my other my other groups. Aline was an actual group, uh, because that was the two twin brothers, Tahaka and Tundra, Aleem and myself. But the others were studio groups, Freak, Conversion, Log, etc. They, Universal Robot Band, they were studio groups uh, that I just happened to be a member of. So you saw yourself as a team player, but your voice was, you know, the, the magic ingredient, the secret sauce on many of those records, and that's why we're sitting here today. <laughs> magic ingredient. How did your understanding of vocals in music develop as you went on and became more experienced in the industry? You must have seen what your voice was doing, when to give, when to go, when to follow the groove, when to sit back, when to accentuate it. I don't know if you developed a greater understanding of your own gift as you were going along, or it all just started and you just went day by day, record by record, studio by studio along with it. I just um, follow what I'm feeling. I try to infuse real emotion into it. So I look at the lyrics and I'm like, how is that person feeling? And then I try to tap into that, much as an actor does. In conveying it vocally, um, I just try to keep that reality in the, in, the, in the forefront of my performance. And that also goes to when I'm arranging background vocals or accompanying rhythms and musical parts. Uh, I just really go for how it feels. If it feels good, and this is something that Quincy Jones said, if it feels good and if it feels right to you, follow that, as opposed to trying to create something that you think you like or that you think others will like. All right, because that's not a reflection of you. That's a reflection of what you think you are. And you're not being free or true to your own feelings. So I just follow the feeling. And um, 
where it takes me vocally, you know, in terms of how I sing or what inflection I might use. I just follow what feels good. How did you reconcile the changes of um, industry techniques that were developing all around you? Because if you compare something like Lay It On The Line with Release Yourself, the way that your voice is used in those records changes quite dramatically in three years. And that's the advent of certain digital techniques and synthesizers coming to the fore. You and your feeling are being modulated and changed and maybe cut into <laughs> different parts. So as much as you want to be true to yourself, someone is taking known. it away from you, no? Auto-tunes yet. I, I'm not looking forward to that. But um, it's technology, and uh, technology is part of musical evolution. And one thing about music is whether you like it or not, it's going to evolve. All right, there's nothing that's, it's, and, and that's as it should be, because music being an art form should be free to its infiniteness. So when they add digitalization and, and sampling and so forth and so on, the various tools that uh, have come to exist, I don't take offense by it. I mean, I'm, I come from the natural actually singing, actually playing an instrument thing where the technology is not a requirement. And I think for that reason, that's where some of the reality of it comes from. However, as I said, music's infinite nature means there's room for everything. All right, you just have to be open to it being integrated together. And uh, as Miles Davis said, there's no such thing as a wrong note. <laughs> There's no such thing. There's just different ways of understanding it or different ways of appreciating it. And um, that's kind of one of my rules of thumb as well. How do you feel when audiences weren't quite as ahead of the game with being open and keeping their ears open as you were? There have been several times in your career where your audience have not wanted you to change and have wanted you to say, stay in your ways. You never felt the pull to stay set in your ways. You always wanted to progress. How did, how did you manage to take them with you, I guess? Or did they get left behind? Well, no, they came with me. Um, and I happily brought them. Progress and evolution as an artist is something that all artists and producers and songwriters experience. And anything that's holding you back from that is something that you must vigorously fight against. Right, and uh, in my case, with Black Ivory, where Black Ivory was typecast as a slow group, all right, when that became too stifling for me in terms of my musical evolution, I had to actually step away from Black Ivory in order to continue my journey of discovery of who I was, uh, which led me to dance music and led me to boogie and everything like that, but. I had to do so, and I was blessed that my fans and the public followed me um, and, and were willing to join me on that journey. Uh, but uh, it's a crapshoot. I mean, you know, it can go as wrong as it can go right, but it begins with believing in yourself and doing the very best that you can to um, create something meaningful and special. You mentioned the word stepping back. There was a period in the late 80s and 90s where 
you didn't feel as at ease with the musical development of hip hop, maybe in its early phase, and oh, you were yeah. you were certainly less prominent than you were. But then you did come back in the early two thousands, and Black Ivory came back, and you were recording with Glenn Underground and Shaz Demir and Ron Trent mm. and Cassius, R.I.P. Philippe. Mm. Um, yeah. What was what was lighting a fire again at that time when you decided? I have more to give. There's more creation to get done. And why did you stay apart in the 90s as well? How are you feeling? I'll be perfectly honest. That's an easy one. Um, Hip-hop. Hip-hop as an art form was introduced around the late 80s, 90s. I completely didn't understand it. I was like, wow, what's what's going on here? (laughs) And um, rather than try to jump into it, all right, without having a clear understanding of what I was jumping into, I decided to step back and take some time to examine what hip-hop's influence on the entire market of music was going to do. If there was a hip-hop influence in me, or if I wanted that to be a part of where I was coming from, and um, if so how to integrate it correctly, all right? So I stepped away, I stopped doing active music around 92. And um, during those years, I took a little job uh, at Blank Productions just making karaoke of all things. I was doing karaoke tracks for like years, all right? But it kept me away from the forefront. Then in 1999, I was invited, Patrick and I, Patrick Adams and I, were invited to Chicago to work with Glenn Underground. Uh, And the first song that we did was Let Me Know You're Feeling Me. And there was just such an energy that came out of that one song. It was like, okay, well, maybe I need to step back in. It's time to step back in. I understood as much as I was going to understand about hip-hop, right? And so... um, I I did what I could to add some of that influence to my work, but then I, you know, relied on what I knew, which was dance music, boogie music, so forth and so on. And grace of God, people were receptive to it. And I had wonderful people like Philippe um, Zadar, God rest his soul, and and Boombass, who were willing to bring me back into the industry. Shea Demir, Ron Trent, and I was able to do singles with them, and that led to my throwback collection coming out and uh, uh, the anthologies, which also came out. At the same time, I reunited with Black Ivory around 1995, and we began our evolution, or our continued evolution, of uh, where we were going, releasing our seventh album, Continuum, uh, in 2011. And we continue to perform now. As of this year, I'm pleased and blessed, believe me, I'm blessed, to be able to say that I have been uh, in the music industry for a full 50 years. Which is just phenomenal. Yeah, give him a round of applause for that. It's just kind of incomprehensible in a way. <laughs> 50 years is a exceptionally long time yeah. for me to even comprehend. And you've been at the forefront of doing what you love for that entire period of time. And music is cool. It's like if you if you are blessed to do it and you do it well and you love it and, and people that hear it like it, you know, 
after a minute, there's, you don't want to do anything else because there's just so much joy that you get from the interaction, from bringing a smile to someone's face, making them groove a little bit, you know. It's just cool. And um, I'm, I'm really grateful for the fact that my very first record, Don't Turn Around, which was released in 1971, is still getting played. 50 years later, that's crazy. Okay. You know, um, so, I again, I don't minimize the blessing of that. I just consider it to be great. <laughs> I saw you maybe six or seven years ago doing a live PA um, at the Pleasure mm. Principle Festival, which is a one-time thing that happened in the UK. Yeah. And you occasionally do solo PAs with artists like Danny Crivet, who's playing this weekend. Okay, yeah. But when you tour, you tour with a nine-piece band. Yeah. I'd man. love to hear about the energy you get, the reciprocal yeah, feeling that man. you're bringing. Uh, <laughs> I call them my angels. Right now, they don't have a name. They're known as LB's Angels. Uh, but usually when you see it on in advertising, you see Leroy Burgess live band because we haven't come up with a name for them yet. All right. Um, 2016, I was invited to Lyon, France uh, to do a live performance with 10 musicians then that I hadn't met and I didn't know. But me being who I am, I'm just like, I'll try anything. <laughs> so, so. I went over, I sent them the music, I went over and uh, we had a couple of days of rehearsal scheduled, but the first rehearsal, they nailed it so well, I canceled all the other rehearsals. <laughs> I said, you guys don't need to rehearse this anymore, it's perfect as it is, let's do the show. We did that show and that was the first interaction on stage with 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 this group since then uh we're now uh been together for about three years 2020 will be our fourth year together and they're just getting better and better we're adding you know right now we're up to nine pieces i'm thinking that in 2020 will be 10 uh 10 pieces besides myself these guys the guys from leona are just amazing if you guys get a chance to see the show, <laughs> that'll be all you need. What is it do you think that lends you and your personality to collective work, team player work, as we said earlier? You seem to always vibe off having people to bounce off of and the energy that you get from that. Is it to do with being isolated on your own? Or is it more that you just gravitate towards collective work and constantly pushing to kind of learn about people and work with them and expand what you can do together? I just like working with people. It's really simple. There's something that I bring to the table, and then there's something that they bring. And when you put those together and those ideas are interacting, right, you end up with something completely different, not what you were thinking, not what they were thinking, but what you become a collective thought. And there's really nothing like that. This has happened all through my life, beginning with Stuart and Russell, from Black Ivory, those were my first partners. That led to the Elaines, Tahaka and Tunde Wa Elaine, 
Conversion, which is my family group, myself, James Calloway, my sister Renee, Dottie Terrell, so forth and so on. I just like working with people. And uh, that's just uh, something that I do, you know, because it's the more the merrier. It's cool. Is that why you feel comfortable as someone who's a star to many but not a household name in the same way? That so many people will have heard your voice on record throughout dance floors and in the background on a parents' record players and across they'll be hearing it across the field in Amsterdam this weekend. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. they will know your tone and your tenor but not your face and your name. And some people don't get down with that as like a way to live. They want to be front and centre. But you seem more at ease with that somehow. I've had stardom, right? And during the Black Ivy years, I've had people just all over me, you know, following me around and so forth and so on. And I was like, where's my actual real life? So I started becoming, it became important to me to be anonymous to some degree and to be able to go to the store without, you know, being mobbed and be able to just do regular people things. So... That's, again, one of the reasons why it's more important that they recognize the voice and they love the music, but they don't necessarily know that it's me or that so forth and so on, because it's the music I want them to appreciate. It's not a me thing. You know, um, I kind of take my ego and just put it into the music and leave it there. So um, that's kind of what I do. Before I open questions up, because I have quite a few people, and I think there's some diehard fans in the audience. Yeah, they almost took the button away from me at the start. Um, how would you sell the music that you make and the music that you love to someone that has no idea where Boogie starts and disco ends? How would you introduce yourself to someone, a child of a friend or a complete unknown who's been under a rock for 50 years, and sell it and give them the same passion that you have? I wouldn't sell it. I'd, I'd leave it up to them. Again, music is infinite, so there's a lot of different things you can like. It doesn't have to be my stuff, all right? Uh, it could be anything, all right? The way that I would present it is I would say, here, listen to this. And then they would decide if they like it or they don't, and I'm cool with whatever way it goes. Because as I said, music is infinite, and for Every person that may not like it, there might be two people that do. And they got a chance to hear it. So, you know, like I said, roll the dice. You know what? I'm actually going to follow off from that because there's an interesting thing that happened two years ago where someone interpreted your music and your message in a remix that didn't work for you. And there was a bit of, oh, yeah. there was a bit of back and forth. <laughs> there was a bit of back and forth about why that didn't work. And for them, their interpretation was a wrong note or a wrong answer in a way, no? What happened? <laughs> That's a really good follow-up, by the way. I hate I, I do I my com- best. I completely hate you for that. Um, the song was I Know You Will, which was originally mixed by Larry LeVan, who's a mix master. If anybody could have done it better than me, it's Larry LeVan. He did such an excellent job. And um, the person who did a remix relied on a whole bunch of echoes. Just echo, this part going in the echo, and this part going in the echo, and just, 
I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. You will, you will, you will. And I was like, <laughs> you know, so, and, and believe me, I, I really tried to give it the benefit of the doubt and say, listen, I want to look for some parts in here that I like. And there just was like nothing. So, and it was all over the internet. It was on Facebook. And I was like, you know, and then people started to ask me about it. And I'm kind of cuckoo in terms of being honest. And I'm like, so I wrote something. And I was like, listen, this is just garbage. It's just horrible, <laughs> you know? I mean, and, and um, I didn't do it so much to discourage the remixer, but to say, to make a statement to say, sometimes there might be a value and a virtue in getting back to the artist before you release something, right? And saying, hey, just let me get your feedback. Do you like this? And then if he had done that with that, I would have said, look, <laughs> don't release that. Let's go, go back to the drawing board. Turn off the echo machine a little bit <laughs> and, you know, try to come from somewhere else because right now you're, you're relying on a gimmick in order to sell the song. And if you allow the song to breathe and sell itself, you know, you can come up with all kinds of different ways of remixing. Perfect example. Recently a friend of mine shared a brand new remix of Weekend by Freak. And... This guy, it's a 17-minute record. I was like, wow. You know, but I listened to the whole thing, and he just accentuated the parts and took everything, took it apart, had Christine Wilshire singing in different parts, and kind of created just a longer version that was fine. He didn't really rely. He put echoes in at certain appropriate points, but he, it wasn't all over the place. It wasn't every second. So... Um, that was an example of a great remix. This other, the I Know You Will remix, and I stand by it, what I said. It was just a piece of crap. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a bad thing. Everybody makes mistakes. You know, you just go back to the drawing board and try again. But, you know, I wouldn't have put it out. What I really enjoy is that You've been susceptible to people, record labels, stealing one song and selling it to another, all kinds of record label subterfuge, but what really, <laughs> what really got your goat is someone oh. fucking up a remix. That really has sent you off on a spiral like never well, before. And that I shows know, how much you care. It's nice. I know of. you will really did. I generally leave it open because everybody has a different way of looking at things. We're, you know, music is a creative process, so... Everybody creates differently, you know, we're all individuals. So I'm open to anybody who gives it a shot. I appreciate them giving it a shot. Um, but just don't mangle it, all right? Just don't, you know, I mean, I know what the virtue of using echoes during a mix is and how it boosts the crowd and, you know, the hype you get out off of it. Um, um, especially after that third drink. But um, there's such a thing as too much, you know, and, and uh, so that was, no, I Know You Will remix, that's the winner. He's the worst guy, okay? 
Okay, and um, uh, I wish him luck. You know, I when he when he um he hit me back, and I I told him, you know, this is how I feel, and I'm not trying to disrespect you, but I feel very strongly about this being my work. You know, and people when people hear it, they're gonna see my name associated with it, and they're gonna say, what the hell? <laughs> so, come on. Let's open this up to some audience questions. Uh, if anyone has anything burning about a favorite of any of Leroy's million records that he's had his name to and name on, or something more general about being in the game for 50 years, this is always, it always takes 30 seconds, then someone puts their hands up. So we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll wait, we'll wait. Someone will, someone will go and then the dam will open. I hope. Is this working? Yeah. Hi. I have Hi. a question. What's the best piece of advice that you've ever received? The best piece of advice that I've ever received was allow the music to speak for you and don't speak for yourself. Many, many artists throw their, their personalities out there. It's all about seeing them, whether they're talented or not. Sometimes they're great and they're fantastic. And sometimes they're just throwing their personalities out because they're disguising the fact that their talent may be a little this and that. So allow your work to speak for you, and uh, you won't have to say that much. All right, so I just lean back and say, I hope it's a good song. I, I did my best uh, in creating it, and I hope it's received, but I'll let the music speak for me, as opposed to you know me speaking for them. Because everybody can blow their own horn, and it's like, I can tell you all kinds of stuff. <laughs> but I won't, because I let my music speak for me. Thank you. Go for it. I knew it would be you. I, I knew the first question would be you. Nobody else is raising their hand. Um, just, um, just always been curious about, if wondering if you could take, take us back to uh, what a day was like going into the studio for a tracking session back in the, you know, the peak of the boogie era, let's say. Were, were you working with big budgets? Were you under, or under extreme time or budget constraints and, you know, get in, get out? Um, what, what was a typical day like uh, when you were tracking back in the period of, the, say, the log stuff? I'm glad you picked the log album because that was the... First of all, thank you for the question. That's a wonderful question. Uh, it, it differed. There were some projects that were very time sensitive, like the Herbie Mann project. Uh, Atlantic threw a lot of money into it. It was big budget, and they wanted it at a certain time, and so we had to really, you know, nail those, those time sensitive recording dates. Then there was a large project where, um, Kenny Care of, who was the president of Salso, he realized that I work at my best when I'm freed and when time isn't an issue. Basically, he gave us a budget of, he advanced us a certain amount so that we could exist and, and you know, handle our business. Then he took care of all the studio time. And whenever we needed to go in, however long we needed to go in, we would invoice him and just do whatever we needed to do. And because he gave us that freedom, 
Uh, Log is one of the, I consider to be one of my best projects because we had that kind of freedom. We were able to just go home, create the song, and then go in the studio and not have to worry about, I need it today or I need it right away and so forth. He's like, when it's ready. Is it good yet? Are you done? And that is something that, I, it's a preferred working environment uh, than, you know, having that pressure, that 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 deadline on you, because uh, you allow the music to breathe and to live on its own, and let you know to tell you when it's ready, as opposed to you always oh, got to be ready now. That's kind of. I hope that answers the question a little bit. Hi, uh, thank you for hi for questions and the moderating as well was pretty good. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the creative process. Like, what are some things that give you creative energy and how does that translate maybe into a studio day? My creative energy comes from everything around me. Uh, my friends, you know, my problems, the things that suck in my life and the things that make me super happy. I take that and I try to translate it into music. One of my teachers... Uh, Herbie Jones, he, ap he happened to be the chief rhythm and brass arranger for the Duke Ellington Orchestra, and he taught me from age 11 to 17. He started to teach me uh, what the importance of feeling was, and that if you're doing music and it don't have no feeling, then why are you doing it? If it's not eliciting some emotion from you and making you smile, why are you doing it? It being feeling-based is, is the core to, to answer your question of why, why we create and what, what to do to create. It needs to be something that feels good to you, all right? And through the process, you should feel good about it. It should be, you know, it should make you smile, it should make you bob your head, you know, whatever. It should make you feel You know, and if somebody walks by the room and they hear, they say, oh, that's not okay. what you doing? That means that you're capturing an emotion and you're sharing it with someone. And for me, that's, I, that's really very cool. So just be true to who you are and create what you know. It doesn't have to be a love song. It doesn't have to be any kind. It could be about anything. Today I walked down the street and it was beautiful. The sun came out. You know, that's how easy it is, you know, and you're expressing and sharing what it feels like to you. And you'd be surprised. Put it in the right way and that guy up in the back is going to hear it and say, oh, I felt exactly that way. That's exactly, you know, and right there you've connected to something you created. Hey, thank you for sharing so honestly, and that's that's a nice. Share. You're welcome. Oh, oh, I was gonna ask where you got it, but I don't want to use my question. Oh, um, uh, Facebook. I saw the thing. <laughs> I'm and, gonna, uh, gonna need a link. I said I liked it because um, I'm an American, and we have uh, a, a president that's there now, and um, <laughs> so the bottom line fits that, uh, but also it's it's something that I, I thought was clever in terms of something a musician would appreciate. It is. I, I appreciate it, even though I'm really yeah, thank a musician. You. Um, uh, you got to talk a bit about how your musicianship has evolved over the years. Mm -hmm. I was curious uh, about 
um, what you've been listening to uh, has evolved and how, if at all, has that shaped or influenced your Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, just like what you listen to influences you. Started out, like I said, my mom was classically trained contralto. She loved singing. Madame Butterfly was her favorite. That aria in Madame Butterfly, that was her favorite. She played that all the time. But then she also played Johnny Mathis, Nat King Cole, a lot of Johnny Mathis, back to Johnny Mathis, a little more Nat King Cole. She played stuff like that. Then she liked Jackie Wilson and Sam Cooke, singers like that. Dad, on the other hand, he liked... He, he was a, um, uh, what do you call it, a bongo player. You know, he wanted to play kungas and bongos, so he loved percussion. So he played Olatunji and Candido and, you know, jazz with a lot of percussive stuff. And that beca those became my first influences. Then I grew up in the era of the Beatles and Motown and Stax. And uh, all of those have little... You know, and, and of course, the Philly, the Philadelphia sound, uh, my, my mom's cousin, Tom Bell, who was largely responsible. So all of that stuff became little nuggets in my creative development and things I wanted to create like. And of course, the master Stevie Wonder, Quincy Jones is big in it. You know, everything that you hear that is of merit, you know, that makes you listen to it and say, hey, that sounds good. I wonder how they did that. I wonder if I could do it. Is, how about today? Like, is there something that stands out to you that's happening now, today? Um, I'm impressed with Bruno Mars. I'm impressed with his uh, integrity as a composer and as a producer. Uh, there's a lot of people that I like, but I don't know their names. I'm not as familiar with them as I was with the artists from my era. Bruno Mars is a perfect example because he gives a proper nod to the music of the 70s, the 80s, and so forth and so on. He's a real singer. He's a real musician. Um, you know, he's not, his, his reliance is not on technology, but on musicianship. And I, I like the trend that is occurring in new artists that leans towards real musicianship, because I think that's refreshing that it's getting away from just the electronics and everything being sampled and um, what do you call it, the, the voice thingy? Vocoding, right, and, and auto-tune, yeah, they, I, I hate that because it's like fake music, it's fake. You know, why isn't the person really singing? Why isn't the person really studying and presenting their craft through their instrument? You know, but then that's an old school way of thinking. Right? I, I get that, all right? And again, you have to open it up for the evolution and for technology to come in. And you have to find a happy medium between the two. Thank you. You're welcome. I seem to remember there was a point where Patrick Adams was so happy hearing the song Get Lucky by Daft Punk and Nile Rogers that he apparently got up his laptop and emailed you on the spot being like, I can't believe our music's coming back and we can hear something real on the television again. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that, but he was very, very proud to say in an interview that he was, he was watching SNL and was like, this is amazing. The 70s are back. <laughs> yeah. We're right back there. Yeah, cool moments like that. That's crazy. Do we have any more questions? Who's got the microphone? Okay, let's call this the last one, and then I've got one more, and then we'll 
Okay, I'll keep you short. Uh, but yeah, anyway. <coughs> Hi. Hi. <laughs> Hello. Is there any project um, that you put personal value in that you really put a lot of love in, <coughs> like a real personal thing, something you made by yourself that means something special to you personally? The song that I've done that, and that's a great question, and, and it's going to be something that you wouldn't think, because one, it's a ballad. Uh, but when I did the Casually Formal album for uh, with the Alines, one of the songs that I did on that was a ballad called Think. And I modeled the ballad after um, Earth, Wind & Fire's song, After the Love Is Gone. Uh, so I kind of wrote in that kind of style. But one of the things that made it so emotional for me was I had 12 of my friends come in, uh, including the two Elaine twins, members of Caprice, you know, quite a few people that I knew that sang um, around, around my way. And there was 12 of us. And um, this was the first time I used a 48 track, two, two machines, Sync, two 24-track machines sync together just to do the background. And we did a 12-hour session of the background. And um, at the end, the end result of how the whole record came out, it, it, it just moves me. It, just, it was the culmination of, you know, all of my dreams and everything that I was hoping to be able to create. Um, so... That's one of the songs that, that answers that question. That's the single song. The project that answers that question is the Log Album. Because, again, this is my family members. We are having a ball, just writing the songs, laying it on the line. I know you will. You got that something. We just had a ball. <laughs> you know, writing that project and then going in the studio, working with, your, with the, my sisters and my brothers and my cousins, it really felt like I'm doing a family album. So that's the project. Uh, the Log album is the project that answers that question. And Think by Aline featuring Leroy Burgess on Atlantic Records is the single that fits that question. Thank you. I have just one more question, and then we'll wrap up. I'm sure you have more than one. And it's an important one, I think. And we've spoken a lot about the positivity in your music and the freedom and what you expressed. Okay. On the 12th, of July this year, it was the 40th anniversary of what's known as Disco Demolition Day, <laughs> when in what was assumed to be a revolt against disco and funk, mm -hmm. but was more like a racialized kickback against black American music, a load of records were mm -hmm. taken to Wrigley Field in Chicago and burnt, and there was a really nasty feeling in the air of purging music and maybe forcing out certain parts of the culture. Were you, at your height in the late 70s and early 80s, ever aware of animosity? Was there ever a reflection that you were doing something greater than yourself by pushing not just your own soul, but your work as a black American against the tide and that you're resisting that? And has that in any way affected your music? Or am I overreaching a little bit? Um, no, you're kind of tying two things together. So let me see if I can get this. The demolition event... That staged event was just for a publicity stunt, all right? Because here's the thing. 
Whatever you call dance music, whether it's disco or house or techno, whatever term you give it, it's dance music, all right? You can't destroy it because music is infinite. It's eternal. You can't get rid of a complete genre by just saying, let's burn these records, okay? So to me, that was an exercise in futility and a total publicity stunt. In terms of how it relates to me and my ethnicity, I come from, and my writing comes from, the gospel church, all right? Um, the black church, the Baptist church that I began in, and so forth and so on. I'm a black man living in Harlem, New York City. That influence, I grew up in the 60s, uh, which is the era of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, Mega Evers, and I watched all of them get shot. I grew, I watched the civil rights era explode and come into fruition, and all of that has an impact. I watched um, men land on the moon. All of it has an impact. Now, how it translates into my work as I was telling the gentleman there how to create and what to create, the things that you see, all right? So my ethnicity and, you know, the occasional spates of racism that I may have experienced uh, in my lifetime, they will end up in a song, you know? And I'll do it in such a way that I will state the issue, but I will always close with hope because there's always hope at the end of the tunnel if you look for it. I mean, things don't have to end badly. You know, that's all about what you decide it's going to end with. So, yes, there's an impact, of course. You know, just like everybody's life impacts everybody. When you put that into a creative genre, a painting or a song or a piece of music, um, let it be true. You know, let it be how you really feel. And um, praise God that somebody might see it and say, hey, that's exactly how I'm feeling. And right there, you've touched somebody with a little piece of you. I hope you all go and listen to Lira Bosch's message of hope this weekend at Deck Mental Festival. For now, please give him a round of applause for a wonderful hour chat. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Destination tonight. Ooh. 